Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And welcome to Invested, which is the podcast about becoming invested in your life, in your money, in a specific way of investing, actually, that is what we consider investing as opposed to speculating with your money. And it's rule number one investing, Dad. It's rule number one investing. Danielle is my daughter and an attorney who does emerging corporation law and is basically learning to invest. Um, and I am an investing teacher and a hedge fund manager, and I've been doing this for 30 years. And I have a very strong opinion about this, as Danielle knows and may not agree, um, mm -hmm. that investing is one very specific thing, and that is buying something that you understand um, and you know the value of it and buying it for substantially less than that value. So for me, investing is much more like going to a garage sale and buying a bike you know is worth, you know, a bike for your kid, your five-year-old or something, that you know you'd have to pay $100 for at Walmart. And here's this bike that is just in perfect shape and somebody's selling it for $50. That's investing. Yeah, yeah that's investing. You know why that's investing? Yeah, because you're certain <laughs> to make money. <laughs> Right. It's because you have a high degree of certainty that what you're buying is actually worth more than what you're paying. And I agree with you on that 100%. Now, now here's where we may disagree. And that is that I think everything else that you do is not investing. In other words, and most controversially, I imagine, uh, for the financial services industry that sells this product all the time, um, when you diversify across a great number of things that you don't understand, you're speculating. You're not investing. They call it investing, but it's not. It's just praying that something goes up that you don't understand. So I don't oh. think that's investing. I, I agree with that. If you buy something you don't understand, yes, I agree that that's speculation. All right, then let's or, go or, even deeper. Or if you buy something where you're guessing, like let's say... You know, typical example, horse racing. People understand what's happening there. It's not that they don't understand it. It's that it's very hard to predict which horse in a given race is going to win. So it's speculation because there's no certainty. There's no even like remote real level of, cert of certainty about what's going to happen in a given horse race. So where we differ, I think, and where you differ from maybe some other investors is what degree of certainty do you have to have in order to cross the line into investing or stay behind the line in speculation? Well, I would say I, I'll actually modify what I'm going to say here a little bit or what I was saying a minute ago a little bit by saying that if you're, you know, reasonably certain, you know, strongly certain, there is no such thing as infinitely, perfectly certain. No. Right? There's Even, not. That's the thing. That's the thing. I mean, we think That's the sun's coming up tomorrow, right? Here you say certainty and it's immediate like clutch your pearls. Something's wrong here because there's nothing certain on God's green earth, you know, like that feeling. And, and well, we certainly know that we certainly know. Sorry. We, we know that there are degrees of certainty with investing and and the highest degree of certainty that we would point to is when you put money into um, money. Your, your money is money. That's <laughs> a high... Money is money. Your money is you money. You heard it here first, everybody. So what money under the mattress. Money under the mattress. Money in the bank vault, you know. 
just money, okay? There's a, there's a pretty high degree of certainty that your money will still be money next year or 10 years from now. The problem is, of course, inflation eats up money. So we take the next best thing um, towards certainty, which is a U.S. government treasury bill, or perhaps in the future, a Swiss government treasury bill or something, some government that's highly stable and has a printing press and can pay you it back. And that's a very high degree of certainty that you're going to have something worth more than you put into it down the road. So if you buy a treasury bill that is a discount at the front of it, you know, you, you pay uh, 70 cents and you get back a dollar in 10 years. Mm -hmm. There's a high degree of certainty that you're going to have that happen. So when we look at certainty, we know it's kind of got to be in that condition of certainty. And what we try to do as an investor is have a very high degree of certainty, which corresponds with a very low degree of risk, right? I mean, you have... If you're quite certain you're going to get your money back and then some, your risk level levels are quite low, um, depending on how right you are about being certain. So with a T-bill, you, you can be assured you're going to be pretty right. The problem is when people invest in the stock market, um, the stock market can make you wrong about that for long, long periods of time. I mean, in, in the stock United States- Stock market can make you wrong about what exactly? About that you're about going to get- what's going to happen? Yeah, you're going to get more money back in the future than you put in today. Yes, the stock market can make you wrong about that. <laughs> yeah, and so, for example, um, if we said, look at our, our, our time frame for being right is 10 years, all right? So we're okay with being wrong about getting more money back in the interim, but you know, we wanna be sure we're getting more money back in 10 years. Then the stock market, you know, most people who sell stocks are gonna argue that there's never been a time when the stock market didn't go up over a 10 year period. It was higher in 10 years than it was today, but that's just bull crap. And it's, it's totally on the surface of it, obviously not true. The stock market dropped in 1929 down by almost 90%. And it wasn't back up to the 1929 levels until uh, 1955. So, wow. yeah. That's 26 years where you didn't get your money back in a profit. Um, from 1965 until 1983, you didn't get your money back in a profit. Like the market was at 1,000 in 1965 and it never got above that until 1983. That's 18 years later, okay? So we have long, long periods of time where it's entirely possible that the market not give you your money back and that is occurring in a country which has had extraordinary growth for many, 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 many years. And so, you know, you don't, you go do this in Argentina, you might have a different story entirely than even 10 years, right? You might not get your money back ever. So just putting your money into a diversified bunch of stocks in the stock market is no guarantee that in a 10 year period, you're gonna be, you're gonna have something more valuable than you put in today. Right. I mean, I always think of these people who say like, oh, just put your money in long term. I don't even know what, like, I guess mutual funds or something like some sort of long term thing. And then when you're 65 and you want to retire, pull it out. It'll probably be up. And I always think, why will it probably be up? <laughs> like, there's no we could we could have just had a massive bubble burst and the stock market's down like half or something. Like, we don't know what's going to happen. There could have been. God forbid, another terrorist attack like 9-11, like something could happen, you know? There's no guarantee that on the day you want your money out because you want to quit your job and retire, that you're going to be able to get it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think to a certain degree, you know, there's this old gambling uh, um, scam uh, 
that was out there. And I sort of feel to a certain degree the, the stock market feels like this a little bit for that there are always people who have put their money into the stock market at just the perfect right time. And they have this experience because they put it in at just the perfect right time that they did very, very well with a long term hold on a very yeah. diversified portfolio. And in fact, Robert Schiller at Yale did a great book on this called Irrational Exuberance, where he proved over the last 140 years that if you put your money into the stock market, when the stock market price to earnings ratio, that is the, the total price of all the companies in the S&P 500 um, divided by their earnings, when, when you put your money in, when that's in a single digit, like when it's eight or nine or five, um, over the next 20 years, you will have made anywhere from five to 14% per year compounded. Wow. And when you put your money in when the stock market PE ratio is at, let's say, 10, or sorry, 15, 20, something like that, then your long range rate of return is going to be very middle of the road ish, 5% ish. And if you put it in when it's at 20, 25 PE ratio, you're likely to get a zero or negative over a 20 year period of time. Wow. Yeah, it shocked the world when he came out with this because it proved that the market um, doesn't stay rational all the time. It's not always perfectly pricing everything, that it goes through these big emotional swings that are not necessarily related at all to the value of the companies that are in there. And that's that's the key thing. So a couple of things that you just said, I actually, I wanted to, to mention. First off, um, the reason that stocks are a good investment is that because you're not putting your money into something that depends on someone else's view of things to make you money. In other words, you, you put your money into Picasso, you got to have other people who like Picassos in order to make money on that. Mm -hmm. But what businesses do is print money. That's ultimately what a business does is it makes money. They and so money. Hmm? they create money, they create money. And if you're creating money, then the money that you create has a minimum value in money because it's money. <laughs> in other so words, we're back, we're back to money is money. Money's money. And so if your business makes a million dollars, you're not going to sell that year's million dollars for $100,000 because it's the money and you have the million already. It's there. You won't sell it for less than that almost ever. So Businesses have a real value compared compared to other things because they make money. That's one thing. The second thing is that this there's this sporting scam that makes me make me think the, about the market sometimes, and it's really a genius kind of scam. But it depends on a lot of people being able to receive a lot of mail. You start off, let's just say, with um, you're gonna you're gonna convince people that you have figured out how to pick football team winners. And so okay. you, you find out all the games that are going to be played um, that weekend and you send out a letter to every better that you can get on, an, on a mailing list. Let's say a million betters uh, who bet football games. And you for half of them, you pick Team A and for half of them, you pick Team B to beat the for spread. half of the people you've sent this thing to. Yeah. Half of it you send it to think you're choosing A and half of it think you're choosing B. So at the end of that game, is this real? Is this something people do? This is something I, I believe somebody did it or it's just a clever idea. And after we get done telling everybody, they will do it. So um, watch don't, out. Don't do that. Don't watch do out that. for this letter. So at the end of the first weekend, 
half of the people on your mailing list think you got lucky and and picked one right. Half of mm -hmm. them have thrown away your letter forever. Yeah. Okay. Now you're down to half a million people. You send out another letter and you do the same uh, thing. Oh, I see where this is going. So you do this for like seven or eight times in a row. I don't remember exactly the math, but you keep cutting your list in half. And you end up with maybe 50,000 people who have gotten a letter that correctly predicted the winner like eight times in a row. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you say, you want the winner for the ninth game? It's 50 grand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's a little bit like the stock market. You get the people who come into it at just the right time, right? They they start investing in 1931 with the stock market at like, you know, 60 or 80. And, and they've just done phenomenally well ever since. And then, or you come in in 1965 with the stock market at 1,000, and you wake up 18 years later and you've made nothing. In fact, the market's down 40% in 1981. So you feel like, this is stupid. I'm never going to invest in the market again. So people have these really different perceptions of the risk of investing in the stock market based almost in assuming they're all diversified port portfolios across a lot of mutual funds or ETFs. Their results and experience of the market are completely dependent on the year they put their money in. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't want to take anything away from the people who did that well, if assuming some of them did it purposefully. Some of them did not. I'm sure it was just chance. But there are people who look at these numbers and intentionally put money in at the right time, right? And so it's just a matter of being around at the right time and having the cash available and then being able to wait for a long time. Well, there are most of people... Us, most of us don't get to do that. No, no, you're right. There, there are people who do do that. I'm, I try to be one of them. I'm trying to teach you to be one of them. Warren Buffett is certainly one of them. Charlie Munger is certainly one of them. Um, these guys absolutely do not invest all the time. They only invest when they have an opportunity where they're quite certain about the value of the business and they're quite certain they're getting a bargain. Otherwise, they don't buy stuff. In a specific, what you're talking about, though, is in a specific company. Whereas what you were saying before was a broadly diversified investment across the entire market. You know, I would say that's true, except that once in a while, Buffett even does the index amazingly. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, I, I'll tell you a little secret about that is that he is, uh, he right now has a put option that he sold on the S&P 500 index um, back in, I think, 2011 or 10. Where he basically is making a bet that says that um, I'll buy I'll buy the S and P five hundred from you, all your shares that you have in this index. Um, I'll buy that at let's say ten. Or let's, I can't remember what it is in the S and P. If it was the Dow Jones Industrial Average, he'd be buying it at about ten thousand. Right today, it's at seventeen thousand. But when he did this, it was right around ten thousand. So he's basically saying in that year that the market is super cheap right now, and I'm going to bet that it's going to be higher in 10 years. Hmm. That's what a put option is? Well, if you do it a certain way, it is. In other words, if you sell it, essentially what you're doing is you're selling someone an insurance policy that says that um, I will be happy, uh, I will insure you if the stock market drops like a brick, let's say from 10,000 to 5,000, in 10 years, it's, it's down at 5,000, you now have an insurance policy and you can force me to buy those stocks from you at 10,000. 
So you okay. don't lose any money. Okay. So it's like health uh, insurance against a storm. Hmm. And he did and it with that's, European. That's what he did. Huh? Okay. Oh, he did it with uh, European options so that he it only pays off on the last day of the option. It doesn't. You can't trade it in the middle of, or you can trade it, but you can't make him buy it at the middle of the option. So essentially, he he did do a market wide bet that the market will be higher in ten years than it is today. I thought that was really interesting. What also the way he did it is it wasn't much of a bet. He basically said, I'll make this bet with you. And he did it at such a time there was a lot of fear about the market and they paid him a huge premium. I think they paid him, I'm going to get this wrong, but three or four billion dollars. What? It's a huge bet. Huge <laughs> bet. It would cost billions and billions to pay. I think it would cost, I think, 12, 14, 15, 16 billion to pay off. Okay, I'm going to be wrong on the numbers, but you'll get the general idea. So it's a huge payoff if they... It, the general idea is that it's billions. Yeah, it's billions. Okay, but it's not a big bet for Buffett because he receives this, let's say, $3 billion. And all he has to make on it every year in order to pay off the maximum that this insurance policy would have to pay off, all he has to make on it every year is about 6%. Oh, I see. And so then he'll he have accumulated the enough money. X number of billions. Yeah. Then he, then he presumably invests it in some other way. Yes. And thereby protects his bet. Exactly. In other words, it's exactly what he does with Geico insurance premium money. That you pay for your car insurance, Buffett's team takes that money and invests it. And what they're doing is they're basically taking the money that you give them and they're building up enough of a pile of money they can always pay off um, all of the, the, the bets that go against them for your cars when you wreck them. And they'll have money left over. And the way they did that is for years, Lou Simpson ran Geico's fund. He had about $2 billion a year that he, he managed for Warren. Um, Lou's a former... A professor at Princeton, and um, he was making about 22% per year on Geico's money when all he had to make was probably six and they would be able to pay everything off. So Buffett's been in this kind of a bet for many, 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 many years where he's confident he can make the money up. It's interesting, though, that even as you talk about it, you're using words related to speculation instead of investing, like he made a bet. Well, that he is speculation. He only has to make 6%. Only. Yeah. Like, to me, those are, those are danger words. Those are betting words. Those are betting words, exactly. So that was speculation by a really good investor who usually doesn't speculate. Okay, so you, you would call it speculation. Sure. All when right. You're, when you're doing that, you're, you're pretty much speculating. Um, by the way, when we, when we teach people about how to use this these options, which a lot of people are very scared of because they are used as a way of gambling by lots and lots of people, 99% of whom lose their money. There's another way to use it. There's a way to do options where you're the house, right? The, the people, okay. it's just like- I don't like know the, how much I want to get into options. We're not honest. going to get into it. I just want to mention that it's, it is something that, that you, is worth learning at some point and we'll get into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, but for right now, I, I let me just let me just point out something. Too much right now. Okay, go we, ahead. What Buffett's doing there with this with this uh, requirement to make six percent a year is understanding the power of compounded interest, and compounded interest is extremely important. I mean, Albert Einstein was a pretty smart guy, and he he basically said 
that compounded interest is the is the eighth wonder of the world. It's a mathematical wonder. Um, he said that those who understand it earn it, and those who don't pay it. And I would venture to guess that a lot of you don't understand um, the power of compounding working against you with credit cards versus the, and the power of compounding not really working for you when you put your money away in a savings account at a quarter percent per year. You, the compounding is enormous. And it's just it, it, it's what is at the heart of wealth that you build up. Charlie Munger once said that um, understanding both the power of compounding interest and the difficult of getting it is really at the heart and soul of understanding a lot of things about investing or, or being unsuccessful financially. So I think we ought to spend a second here to talk about this in, 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 the, in this context, how you would figure out your compounding rates of return and what that would mean to you over a long period of time. You want to spend a minute on this? Totally. Okay. So let's start with this. Let's say that you could put your money away in something like a U.S. Treasury bill at 2% interest. Okay. All right. Now, what we want to know in this game we're going to play right now is how long will it take me to double my money? So let's say we're going to put $100,000 into a U.S. Treasury 10-year T-bill at 2% interest. How long will it take me to double my money, assuming I just roll it over every 10 years, however long it takes? I'm going to go with a long time. Okay. Fair enough. So I'm going to teach you a rule. The, to figure this out in your head really quickly, and it's very useful for our investors. This is called the Rule of 72. Okay, okay. So we've mentioned this a number of times. You've mentioned it a number of times as we've been discussing valuation. And you've uh, alluded to it, and you've gone through it a little bit. But, um, yeah, I would like to know what it is and where it came from and, uh, and actually learn it here because you mentioned it a lot. Well, it's, a, it's basically a shortcut to estimate the number of years required to double your money at any given annualized compounded rate of return. So first, let me tell you the difference between compounded rates of return and simple rates of return. Yes, please. Okay. Because that difference is often not stated. I think people assume that you know, and it yeah. makes me really confused. Yep. So a simple rate of return means that your money is making money at a certain rate by putting it into, let's say, a bank. So if you lend it to a bank and um, let's just say they pay you 1%, then at the end of the time, uh, let's say one year, when you get your 1% on your $100,000, you'll have $1,000. With me so far? Okay, so at the end of one year, you've got $1,000. Now, you take the $1,000 that you've got out of the bank and you spend it and buy a refrigerator. All right, now your 100000 is still in the bank and the next year it earns another $1,000. And you take that out and you pay a bill. And the next year your 100000 is still in the bank and it earns another $1,000. And again, you can use that for anything you want it to. What you're getting there is simple interest. It's a specific amount of money that you get over a course of one year. And then, of course, if it's less time than that, it's pro rata to the time frame. But we always do sort of interest rates in a per year basis. 
So you're getting just the interest for one year, and then you're not getting interest the next year on the interest that you got the first year. I, yes, that's what simple interest is, but I'm not sure that's the greatest example because it would be the exact same result whether or not we had simple interest or compounded interest because you're taking the $1,000 out of the bank account every year. Okay, give me a better example. So isn't simple interest if you leave the 1000 in the bank, but you're, you've only been promised your agreement with the bank is that you get simple interest on your original deposit. So you still, every year, even if you left the $1,000 every single year, you're still only receiving $1,000 in interest every year. Right? Yeah, that's a better example. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Whereas with compounded interest, if you leave the $1,000 in the bank the first year, the next year you're going to get, what would it be, 1000 and one, a thousand and a hundred. What's 11? what's one percent of a thousand? Oh my gosh, Dad! I don't know. Well, uh, here's how I do this stuff. It, honestly, is, is it ten? So... I think it's ten. Okay, so the it's first like you thing gotta you do... like erase zeros. Yeah, and but the easiest uh... thing to do is you just take ten percent of something. Just do ten percent. So you know, ten percent of a thousand is pretty easy, right? A hundred. Exactly. Well, 1%. Because you just take off one zero. There you go. So 1%, you take off two zeros. Yeah, so I just then reduce it from there. I was right. It's 10. It's exactly right. Tell me. Okay. <laughs> so after year one, I'm sorry, at the end of year two on your compounded interest, you would have $1,000 and $10. Well, one you, zero, one zero is what you, you were just saying. At the end of year two, Let's do the math again, because at the end of year two, you've had your $100,000 in there for two years. And at the end of year one, you made $1,000. Right. And at the end of year two, you made $10 on the first $1,000 you made. Yeah. But you also made another $1,000. That's what I said. You get 1000 and 10 New money. New money. Um, plus the 1000 that you got the first year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was already there. Very good. You wouldn't have gotten the extra 10 without the 1,000 being there. Right on. So now we're compounding interest. So that's you have, yeah. you have Whereas two... if, that, if you were having simple interest in year two, you would have not have gotten your extra 10 bucks. Exactly. That's you would not difference. have gotten the extra 10 bucks. You don't get interest on your interest. You don't get interest. You get interest on your interest. So compounding is interest on your interest. Yes. And amazingly, this... It turns out to be the secret to getting rich <laughs> is to get interest on your interest. And by the way, there's a terrific book out there that was written in the 1920s called, I think it's called The Richest Man in Baghdad. And it's a PDF. You can download it off the Internet. Let me just Google it and see if that's right. Okay. Well, the other thing you said, actually, that's probably the secret to getting rich is that in your original example, you took your thousand dollars out every single year and paid a bill or bought something. And uh, if you do that, you're not going to get any interest on your interest either because there's no interest to get any interest on. And that's where the wheels fall off the wagon for most people. Yeah, The Richest Man in Babylon is a, is a PDF and you can download it. You might buy it from somebody that's online or whatever, but um, you can get it. And it's really, really a good little book about this, uh, about how to get rich. And essentially what it tells you is you pay yourself first 
and, and the book just suggests you pay yourself 10% of the money you earn. You pay it to yourself first by peeling it right off the top of whatever you collect and it goes right smack in the bank and into an account that you're saving, which we call, when I write about it, I'm calling it a Berkey because it's kind of like Berkshire Hathaway. It's storing up cash flow from some other source. So you happen to be the other source of this account. You put in the money first. So if you make, let's say you make $50,000 and you're taking home uh, $40,000, you would take $4,000 and you'd shove it into that account. Now, obviously- so paying yourself first yep. doesn't mean you get to spend the four grand. It just means you you have to do nothing with that four it grand. It precisely means you don't spend that four grand. So you're paying so, yourself first. It's so sad. I know. It's sad, but it's going to make you rich if you do it. And that is that you take that 4000 every year and you stack it away and then you invest it. The rest of the money is what you have to live on. And so what it does, this little idea, is it forces you to live on something slightly less than what you're actually bringing home. And that difference of not living on everything you're bringing home, but just slightly less, that gives you capital. And when you invest the capital, you start to get the benefit of compounded rates of return. So now let me let me show you where compounded it rates of return can so go. sounds so easy. Oh, just take 10% and put it in account. So easy. I know. It does sound so easy, I doesn't it? I can't handle it. I can't handle it. When people start giving that advice, I'm just, I just want to be like... Have you like lived in the real world? Like, do you know how hard that is to do? <laughs> I mean, there are so many other things that money needs to go to. It's uh, it's a little frustrating. I know, but you know, it's what seems to be the case is that a lot of times we buy a lot of things that we think we need no. that end up in our garage. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay, what are you talking I, about? I, so I try, I've try. i tried to do this. I know everyone's like, you're supposed to tithe to yourself. You're, well, I don't know, whatever people say. You're supposed to basically save some amount of money. And it's really hard to come up with this extra money every month when you're paying your student loans, you're paying your mortgage, and you're trying to like, you know, have some sort of, life that you don't hate, like hang out with people every now and then and, you know, go see your family and buy plane tickets and stuff like things. But in, go in all fairness, really quick. honestly, I could look at your life. I guarantee you I could find a thousand bucks a month. I guarantee you. And I've looked at I lots bet, of people who are students of mine and who say that there's no way they can save any money. And I dig into their life a little bit, like 15 minutes of digging. And I find out, for example, single mom, 14-year-old son, and all he does is stay home and play video games. This kid could be working, all right? He could be mowing lawns. He could be contributing to her, and, and that money could be money she could put away, okay? She buys a new car and pays the payments on it so her daughter won't be embarrassed by having her mom drive up and dropping her off in a beater, all right. These are choices people make that they right. don't and, have to make we, that and way. And the point is we all make the choices and it's hard. That's the point. And if you found an extra thousand dollars I had a month, I would put it towards student loans. It wouldn't go into this savings account thing. OK, well, then I, I mean, fair enough, because if you're paying eight percent a year in student loans effectively by paying those off, you're making eight percent a year. Yeah. So so here's the point is that. If you can save a little bit of money, then you can start making compounding work for you by learning to invest. At a, at a minimum, you can start putting money away while you're learning to invest. 
and stack it up, right? And so that when you're ready to actually really invest, buy things that you know are on sale, then you're going to have some capital to do it with. And it doesn't, here's the key thing I want to tell you. It doesn't take a lot at the beginning. So let's explain how that works. We're going to use the rule of 72 to figure out how much money we would make if we could start with, let's say, $10,000. All right? Okay. Is $10,000 your definition of not a lot? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're starting with ten grand. And, let and me, then let, what happens? Let me tell you why, why 10000 is not a lot. 10000 is an amount of money that a family could make back in about three years of working hard and saving. So if you were to lose your 10000 it's not the end of the world. If it was a million, then it would be the end of the world. So let's talk with $10,000. And you're going to invest it. So now you know how much money you're working with. And let's invest it at a really high rate of return. Let's invest it at Buffett's rate of return of, let's say, 24% a year. Okay. All right, just for fun. Now, how long would it take us to double our money, our 10,000? How long will it take to double one time? And by the rule of 72, we divide our compounded annual growth rate that we're going to get, which is 24, into 72, and it tells us how many years before we double our money one time. So 24 into 72 is 3. What are the actual numbers you put into a calculator? 24 and 72. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I do so too. you say 72 divided by 24. 72 divided by 24. 24. Equals. Not 24%. So no, we're not, not doing 24%. That's okay. just 24. Equals 3. Equals 3. Okay, so there's, and now what that tells us is, if we get 24%, it'll take three years to double our $10,000 once. All right, so now we know something really powerful because let's say you're 30 wait, years wait, old. Say that, say that one more time. Three okay. years to double once. That's yeah. what we've just gotten is the number of years it will take to double. Yep. Okay. And that's what so we're looking 72, for. The formula is basically 72 divided by this the growth, X number. The growth rate. But not actually a rate. It's just the number itself. Yeah, but we got to call it something. the number of years it will take to double. Right. So let's go back and say we're doing uh, that 2% return. Um, how long will it take to double our $10,000 putting it away at 2%? How many years? So we do 72 right. divided by 2. Right equals uh, 36. Very good. So ballpark 36, 36 years, years to double once. So if we were to take our first $10,000 as a as a saver that we put away by paying ourselves first and we put it away at 2% in 36 years, right about the time you're ready to retire, you will have turned $10,000 into $20,000. <laughs> okay. Now, okay. let's let's take a look at what happens when we do 24%. How many years will it take us to double one time if we make 24% a year? Three. Right, because you divided 72. 72 divided by 24. Equals? Equals three. Very good. So now let's say we've got 36 years to go before we retire. So how many three-year chunks are in 36 years? How many three-year doubles will we get? 
12. Exactly. So let's go through the math. 10,000 becomes 20,000. That's one double. 40, 80, 160, 320, 640, 1.2 million, 2.5 million, 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, 40 million. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> want to do that again did you just say that ten thousand dollars becomes 40 million dollars in 36 years yes and this is not a fictional example this is the this is the most wonderful thing about this is that that's exactly what happened to people who gave warren buffett ten thousand dollars to invest in the late 1950s, when he was knocking on doors, asking for money from neighbors, they gave him $10,000. And in 36 years, he turned it, literally turned it into $40 million. He did that. People have the $40 million. Whoa. Instead, their neighbors put their money away at 2% and have $20,000. Or their neighbors put the money more likely into a standard mutual fund which compounded money at, let's just say, 7% a year, how much money would they have accumulated in 36 years? If you're doubling at, oh, what the heck, let's give them 9% a year just to get a nice round number. Let's do 9% per year. How many years to double one time? No idea. And I don't have a calculator. Okay, we don't have to have a calculator. It's a rule of 72. I know that, but I don't know what 72 divided by 9 is. Do you it's, know what 72 divided by 9 is? Yes. Your Vedic math. Your Vedic math was no, a disaster. You, it's never, it's never going to happen. You can give me 72, you, uh, 72 the, divided by 2. Your I could Vedic do. math at Maharishi School was a disaster. You never bothered. They didn't teach you to memorize the multiplication tables like I had to memorize. At that is so a low element. untrue. I memorized Oh, you did? Okay, well, what's, what's, uh, okay, it's nine times eight. I'm just part of your multiplication tables. Oh, that's an interesting way to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> nine divided Wait, into 72. Dividing and multiplying related. Nine divided into 72 is eight. So that tells you it takes you eight years to double one time. All right? Eight okay. years to double one time. And there are, what, uh, four and a half eight-year chunks in 36 years? About, because eight and the 36 is four. 32 carry four. Eight and a half. Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. going to get eight and a half doubles. So now you take your $10,000 that you didn't give to Warren Buffett in 1958, and instead you invested in a broad market mutual fund, and you're lucky enough to get 9% a year, and you get four and a half doubles. So 10,000 becomes 20, 40, 80, 160 plus half of 80 of 160 is 240,000. So here you did pretty well at 9% in a, you know, mutual fund. Yeah, I mean, that seems pretty good to be honest. Okay. And 10,000 became 300, how much is it? 300 and, uh, and 60,000, 320,000. Sorry. Okay, I got to do it again. The, 10 the becomes 20, 40, 80, 160, 240,000. 240, 240 yeah. is what we said. All right, so 10,000 becomes 240,000 for one neighbor, and the neighbor that gave the money to Buffett has 40 million. 
Yeah, it's a little it's a little bit different. It's a little different. And when people start to see the impact of compounded rates of return over a long period of time at these higher rates, they do tend to start to get interested in learning to invest. Yeah, well, it's not like anybody sitting out there being like, no, I'm going to take the 9% because <laughs> that just seems like a better... No, I mean, obviously, the reason that they chose the 9% is that they thought it was more reliable, and they didn't think the 24% was going to happen. That's right. They didn't believe that Warren Buffett could do it. Because the whole world is out there to tell you, give us your money so that we'll invest it for you and give you the 9% or the 7% or whatever they're telling you they're going to give you. Um, and that gives them $100 billion in fees and commissions every year. Of course, they're going to tell you to give them the money. And of course, they're going to tell you that it's very risky to do this on your own, that you're probably not going to be successful, and that nobody beats the market. Even better, that you can't beat the market. That's my favorite one. You can't beat the market. It's impossible. And nobody beats the market, you know. And then, then when you find somebody that beats the market, they call them a lucky monkey flipping coins. So it's it, the whole game is set up to accumulate your money into the hands of the Wall Street uh, machine, which takes enormous piles of fees out of there, so much so that John Bogle at Vanguard said that he wrote a letter to the SEC complaining about this scam that they're pulling on Wall Street to charge you fees for all this stuff. And basically, he said they're taking 60% of your retirement away. So if you do that little scheme, if you put your money in mutual funds, like people were told to do all through the 70s and 80s, you put your money in mutual funds, their fees remove money that's not, that is no longer able to compound for you. And when they take that away, it reduces your retirement portfolio by over 50%, according to John Bogle at Vanguard. It's like taking out some of your $1,000 that we were talking about in the beginning. Yep, exactly. So you no longer get to compound $10. You're only compounding $6 every year. Yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, the thing is, with the compounding thing, I, I think the reason it comes off as a little bit shady sometimes is that uh, Warren Buffett, I'm sure, did not actually make 24% every year. There are probably some years he made 18, and there are some years he made 40, and there are some years he made five you know Precise. like yeah very true or may maybe he even lost money some years although i don't know if that's true the point is when somebody talks about compounded rate of return looking in the past it's meant to sort of smooth out all of those ups and downs right and um and so you end up looking like hopefully you end up looking like you have a really good record when actually in that record, there might be some really down years and then some really up years. Well, Buffett is, a, is an exceptional investor. I mean, he's a genius. And, and he actually, over that 36 year period of time, I think he had one year where he actually lost any money. Yeah, that's why I was saying that because I, I realized I, I don't know if Warren Buffett ever had a he, year. He's just extraordinary. He had one year. For, the, for all the rest of us mortals, we're going to have you know, big down years for sure, where marked our what we own mark to market looks like we've lost money. Um, the you know Warren Buffett and Bernie Madoff are the two guys I know that almost never lost any money. <laughs> <laughs> Warren because you he's don't, a genius. You don't want to be the other person. Madoff made <laughs> because he just made up the numbers and and handed them out. So <clears throat> you're right. There's going to be volatility. There's going to be ups and downs in in uh, your portfolio. So we want to think in terms of long-term hold, that it's the, it's the holding of this money that makes it possible for you to 
to get the power of compounding going for you, which is really gigantic. It's, it's very, very important you do that. Jesse Livermore was a guy that made a lot of money all through the Depression and stuff. And he said, it, it never was my thinking that made big money for me. It was always my sitting. <laughs> <laughs> and Charlie, Charlie Munger said over and over again, it's like, it's, it's, it's that our investing strategy is, is laziness bordering on sloth, which which means a huge amount of time is done doing nothing that you don't touch anything. You don't, you, I mean, Charlie hasn't bought a stock to my knowledge for over three years because he does not buy companies. You know, I think we've talked about this. Here's a guy that shouldn't be buying green bananas because he's 92 years old and he's yeah. waiting patiently in cash for this market to turn for three <laughs> years. Right? So this is a discipline. That's a lifetime discipline. And it's and it's through understanding the power of compounding and and the the help that the rule of seventy two gives you to figure this stuff out. So real quickly, let me summarize rule seventy two: is that you if you know the rate of return you're expecting, you divide that into seventy two and you find out how many years it'll take to double your money one time, and then you can figure out how long you're going to have your money working like that and what your end result would be. Now the other way to use it is to um, is to take how long it took you to double your money one time and divide that into 72 and it'll tell you your compounded annual growth rate of your money. So okay. if we know, for example, it took us 10 years to double one time, our 100,000 became 200,000 in 10 years, we divide 10 into 72 and it tells us that our compounded annual growth rate is 7.2. Okay. So we use it both ways like that. Where did this, where did this um, uh, formula, I guess, where did this method come from? Like a lot of these really cool formulas, um, it comes from, you know, guys playing with numbers that do this as part of, you know, their, that's what they do for a living is they play with numbers. So Caltech physicists, Bell Labs guys, IBM researchers love to play with numbers and this this idea of rule of 72 just comes out of playing with the numbers. Um, I don't know it's it's perfect origin. It's been around a long, long time. Um, but at some point in time, by the way, speaking of playing with numbers, we should talk about the guys who played with numbers and figured out how to beat the casinos in Las Vegas with blackjack by counting cards and how that skill set turned into a hedge fund strategy Mm -hmm. That compounded money at 28% a year for 30 years. We had to talk about that sometime too. Wow. wow. Well, I wanted to make sure we talked about the rule of 72 before we wrap up um, and do a summary of the valuation methods because you mentioned it so many different times and I just was a little confused about it. So this was good. And I think, I think we're going to come up to a few questions we have about valuation and summarize the three valuation methods again for everybody. All right. Sounds good. Well, we're on, we're on the valuation train again. Yep. We're on the valuation train again. And if you want to learn more about this, let me just plug our workshop. Just hit the button on on uh, our, our website for the podcast, which is investedpodcast.com. And just hit the button. And love to have you come out to Atlanta and we'll be happy to teach you three days absolutely for free. And we don't sell anything, which is fun. So, guys, um, until and we see you out here. And send your questions to questions at investedpodcast.com. Yep. 
Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Time to go play. See ya. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.